This week on Wealth Track, all the reasons to be bullish with legendary value investor Bill Miller. Well, if you look at the history of the stock market, um, all you have to do is believe one thing, which is that you can't predict the stock market in the short run. I happen to believe that nobody can do that. Okay, maybe maybe James Simons at Renaissance, maybe there's a couple other people. But if you if you don't believe that you can add value by switching in out of stocks, and stocks go up 70% of the years, then you should be bullish. Your, your default position should be bullish unless, unless something is very crazy. All the reasons to be bullish with legendary value investor Bill Miller. He is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. We are living in extraordinary times. We are calling it the pandemic pivot. The changes that have occurred are accelerated because of COVID-19 and the dramatic response to it from economic shutdown to massive life support. Here are a few choice examples provided by recent WealthTrack guest, widely followed economist David Rosenberg. The shutdown caused a $3 trillion collapse in U.S. GDP. The fiscal and monetary response to it will be $10 trillion at least. In April alone, wages and salaries were clipped at a $740 billion annual rate. The government transferred $3 trillion to the personal sector, as Rosenberg points out, four times the income lost. Then there's the monetary response. The Fed's balance sheet, which had grown from $800 billion at the start of the Great Recession in 2008 to over $4 trillion by 2019, has expanded north of $7 trillion. It is expected to reach $10 trillion by the end of the year, or nearly 50% of GDP. As we have all learned from experience, there's a strong connection between Federal Reserve policy and the stock market. According to Rosenberg, and illustrated by this chart, there is a nearly 80% correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and stock market performance. Taking a closer look at stock market performance, it's been largely driven by a small group of well-known mega-cap tech stocks, which explains the NASDAQ and S&P 500 stellar performance and the lagging broader markets. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook make up 40% of the NASDAQ's market capitalization and 20% of the S&P 500's. Is the stunning rally durable? Are stock prices running on anything other than Fed fumes? Yes, says legendary value investor Bill Miller, who joins us for the second of our two-part interview with him. Miller is the founder, owner, and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners, a firm he founded in 1999 while working at Leg Mason, but took over completely in 2017. Miller holds the unbeaten record of beating the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years from 1991 to 2005 with the Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund. His flagship Miller Opportunity Trust Fund, which he created in 1999 and has co-managed with Samantha McLemore since 2014, has $1.5 billion in assets and has beaten the S&P since the market's 2009 bottom, producing 20% plus annualized returns versus the S&P 500's 17% returns. Miller Value Partners has been a WealthTrack sponsor over the past year. I asked Miller why he is bullish on the stock market. 
Well, if you look at the history of the stock market, um, all you have to do is believe one thing, which is that you can't predict the stock market in the short run. I happen to believe that nobody can do that. Okay, maybe maybe James Simons at Renaissance, maybe there's a couple other people. But if you if you don't believe that you can add value by switching in out of stocks, and stocks go up 70% of the years, then you should be bullish. Your, your default position should be bullish unless, it's, unless something is very crazy. So I, I think that's that's why I'm you know mostly bullish. What, you know, one of my one of my friends said that I when I was asked at a meeting if I was bullish, and he said, well he. He's either bullish or he's very bullish. Those are his only two only two positions, which is not technically true, but it's but it's not far from true. When was the last time you were bearish? Uh, the last time I was bearish, I just say uh, bearish in the sense of uh, I thought it was the right thing to do because uh, I, I I was wrong about 08 and 09. And by the time I figured out that this was a really big deal, the market had already reflected that. And so it was too late to too late to change my opinion on that one. So we just just decided to write it out. When the market uh, tumbled in uh, in March, for instance, I think you were quoted somewhere as saying that it was one of the greatest buying opportunities um, of your career at that time. How do you view the market now as far as a buying opportunity? Yeah, I was on CNBC and said that and on some other shows from the 18th to the 23rd, which is the exact bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, unless the market goes below that level, that will turn out to, that that was the buying opportunity of a light. No, one of the one of the one of the five best right, right. now, I, I think right now is I think it's an excellent time to be in equities because I think that we're only partially there the way back with the average stock, the median stock in the market. And I think that people are underestimating, and I think there was a story on this that uh, somebody, uh, I guess some academics were looking at the valuation of the market. And one guy had said that, you know, every day that you don't buy Nestle is a do- you're throwing away money because he said, if you look at actually what they, re- what they earn and you then run it through a model with, it, with zero inflation and zero interest rates, it's worth 50 times earnings. And I think that that's that's it's theoretically the case, but probably won't actually be the case. But of course, you and I both remember that in 1999, GE traded at 50 times earnings and Home Depot yes. traded at 60 times earnings. So and interest rates were a whole lot higher then, and inflation was higher. So it's not impossible that people could get exuberant again, or if the interest rates, if the curve shifts up. So if the long rates and intermediate term rates rise because the Fed's pinning the short rate down for a couple of years. And people start losing significant money in bonds and stocks are going up most days, they're going to shift back as they did during that first taper tantrum when interest rates went from what, 160 to 320 in like three months and the stock market that year was up 35%. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that, that we could get valuations that go a lot higher than most people, including me, are probably comfortable with. So I, I think that that's, unless, again, unless there's a, the pandemic comes back with a force or some unusual thing. That's the path that we're headed down, in my opinion. So right. buying them now is a good thing. Let me ask you about the uh, kind of what's driving the market uh, as far as, you know, everybody's talked about for years now, the fangs. And I think you owned Amazon at the IPO, right? Yeah, we, were, we owned Amazon at the IPO. We, we were the second largest buyer of Google at the IPO. Right. We bought Facebook on the IPO. We own Netflix. We were the largest shareholder of Netflix when people thought it was going bankrupt 
because of uh, technology. So yeah, we have a familiarity with those. Right. We, own, so, we, we, don't, we don't own Netflix today, but we own the others. Okay. And, and it's so interesting because, you know, you're known as kind of a deep value investor and people look at those and say, well, where's the deep value in those or the value in those? You're saying they're still reasonably priced? Yeah. As Warren Buffett says, that, you know, the, the, the growth value distinction is a false dichotomy. I mean, mm -hmm. Growth is an input into the calculation of value. And so, you know, if you look at if you look at all those businesses, I mean, there's a reason by why what, what was Facebook today it was down 15 points, but so it was 200 and something or other, right? And it was 18, I think, a few months after the IPO. And Amazon came public at a 400 million valuation. It's got a 1.3 trillion dollar valuation today. And for most of its history, people thought it was overpriced. It didn't make any money, you know. In fact, Amazon had the highest short interest in its history in 2016. So it's only been recently that people have thought about that differently. You know, when, when Google came public, uh, I, there, there's a CEO of a, a company, that, a very smart CEO, an MIT grad, who told me he was going to short it when it came public because it couldn't make money. It would go to zero. And I said, why was that? And he said, because, the, because it's a commodity. Search is a commodity. There are all kinds of companies that have had search engines, and they've all been superseded. And the reason is that the marginal cost of search is zero. And he had a degree in economics from MIT. And he said, and economics teaches us that commodity businesses go, to, the pricing of the commodity goes to the marginal cost of production, which is zero. So this one's going to zero. Well, you know, he lost a lot of money on that. So he was, he was wrong about that. So, but all those companies today, I think, are, I think they're attractive. And you can go to the opposite end of the spectrum, where you can look at companies like, like I think our third largest holding is Teva Pharmaceutical, the Israeli mm -hmm. uh, generic company. So Teva is the largest generic drug company in the world. So if you're worried about drug prices and all, it's part of the solution, not part of the problem. They got a new CEO a few years ago who was one of the great CEOs and is doing an unbelievably good job. As he said, in the, I think he said in the, in the 40 quarters that he's been a CEO, he's never missed a quarter once and it's always been beat and raised. And he said, I don't intend to miss one here either. But it trades at about four and a half times earnings because it's got a lot of debt. But they can pay down the debt easily and that, that stock is, you know, so it's, it's a great company. It, it writes one out of every seven prescriptions in the United States. And there's a product liability issue overhanging it. But the history of product liability has been that, again, estimates have been miles higher than the actual liability that these companies face. And then one more, you know, that's, that's I think an easy one is ADT, the, the, the home security and commercial security company. So the stock is around, you know, seven and a half or eight. It, it came public at 14 a couple of years ago. It grew revenues 10%, uh, which for a, a company that's mature like that, that's a lot in a low nominal rate of return world. It has a 15% free cash flow yield, so it's generating a lot of cash. It was an LBO, so it's got debt, but it's paying down the debt. And, um, and it dom completely dominates an absolutely essential business. It has a 35% market share in the U.S. in, in security in the, in the home. And, and then they've been buying some small companies, which they can because the, the business is totally fragmented. And they just bought in their biggest distributor, which, will, which is hugely free cash flow positive. It's got great management team. And again, 15% free cash flow yield. So it's, it ought to be trading right now. If it traded where junk bonds traded, it'd be in the 20s. I mean, how much does debt bother you if a company is pretty highly leveraged? It all depends on the cash flows and the, and the interest coverage yeah. on the debt and the long-term return on capital at the company. 
So, uh, you know, when people say the, the PE multiple is too high, so you can buy Teva at four times earnings. Oh, well, they have too much debt. Right. They're paying down a billion dollars or more of debt a year. And that business is absolutely essential. And the bond market is telling you that their debt is not a problem. It's not like their debt's yielding 10%. You know, it's yielding 3%, 4%, 5%. I'm okay. very worried about debt in capital-intensive uh, commodity businesses like oil. So I think mm -hmm. that's a big problem uh, out there. But that's very different. That's an unpredictable price of a, of a commodity where you've got a glut. Right. And so that's, that's not an area that you're looking is in energy? No. No. Airlines. Warren Buffett got out of the business, <laughs> famously, um, said he probably never should have gotten in. Um, but you're still, you still own airlines. What, United, Delta? We, United and Delta right now. Right. We, we switched our American into, into United, into more United. So we have, we have mm -hmm. just those two. But again, our, our, our timing is a little bit different from Warren on these. You know, our, our cost on Delta, which is in the, you know, right now in the 30s and, and uh, uh, is, was seven and the same on United. And uh, with both those companies, we think they're well managed. Delta, I think, is better managed than United. But our view on that was that if you looked at the at the assistance the government was giving them and coupled with their own ability to manage capacity and what the bond market would enable them to raise money at. So I think United just did another junk bond deal today or yesterday. Um, it was clear to us that they could survive at least at least until the end of the year. And and so when this happened in March, we're thinking, well, why would we blow out of these things? because we know they can make it at least until the end of the year and probably longer. And so even American has said that, that bankruptcy isn't an option. I mean, they're, they're pretty levered compared to, they're all levered now because they borrowed a fair amount of money, but before right. this, they were, they, were they were among the most levered of the companies. But still, if my view was also, and it is right now, that if you, if you, sold, if you had the airlines and you sold them, then you were effectively betting against a vaccine. And, and, and I don't mean a vaccine this year. I just mean a vaccine over the next year or, or more and or just effective treatment. So if it turns out that, you know, a combination of steroids and different combination drugs makes this a, a treatable illness for the for the few people that actually have to go in the hospital and the death rate drops way, way down, then again, the airline traffic is going to come back fast. So and much faster than the current stock prices would indicate. So right now, I'm not I'm not betting in favor of a vaccine. But I'm not willing to bet against it either. I, I want to let that kind of play out a little bit more over the next, you know, over the next few months. So, Bill, when you said that you knew that the airlines had until at least the end of the year, that sounds scary to me. <laughs> Why doesn't that bother you? That that seems like a really short period of time if things kind of don't go their way. The the, the short answer to that is that. We every every day we look at the pricing of our airlines. We look at the news flow that may affect the airlines. We look at the number of people going through the TSA checkpoints. We look at the where the bonds are trading, and so it's not gonna it's not gonna be like you know Wirecard or Luck and Coffee where you walk in and find out that that it's a fraud and that there's no right. money there. In our position, we adjust our opinion based on the iteration of the fundamentals and and especially the bond fundamentals. And uh, the overall, the overall, our assessment of, of the future. Well, right mm -hmm. now we're in June and we're confident that they got at least until the fourth quarter. 
and probably probably if they if Delta gets cash positive uh, by the end of the fourth quarter, then they're they're good to go, uh, unless there's some catastrophic new pandemic that knocks their revenues back down to 10% of what they were, because they will they will gradually generate enough cash if if capacity utilization goes up from that fourth quarter level to begin to pay down debt, and the stock prices would likely be a lot higher. What if travelers don't come back, especially business travelers. And what does that do the, to the profitability and, and therefore the prospects for the airlines? Yeah, it, it won't come back for a while. And by that, I uh-huh. don't mean uh, several months. The CEO of Delta said he thought it'd be at least two to three years. Right. Uh, again, if, if, there isn't a, if there isn't a vaccine, meaning treatments will be better, you know, people will gradually realize that it's, I mean, Americans said that they were going to fly their planes full because they were convinced that there wasn't risk. And I think in uh, the day, there's only been able to trace one case of COVID that basically was caused by uh, somebody being on an airline. So there's still mm-hmm. there are people flying every day. So I think that's it's it's pretty clear that that's pretty safe. And I think that the longer that happens, and you don't see that as a spreader site, then people gradually come back. Right. But when you look at the you know huge universe of stocks, is I mean, what is so compelling about the airlines versus i don't know any other industry oh i think i think for us it's part of it it's it's diversification and so one of the things that we we were looking at the cruise lines which we haven't done anything with yet but Mm -hmm. the way in which we're looking at valuation here is we go back to before covid and look at look and see where the various industries traded relative to each other because then the fed was on hold inflation was low interest rates were low the economy was growing nicely, and so the and that had been going on for a while, right? So 2019 was a, you know was a, a good year, and so it looked to us like the market had sorted out where things should trade relative to each other in that kind of an environment, and right now that market doesn't have that sorted out except on very near-term fundamentals. So if we gradually get back to that beginning 2020 thing the airlines likely have a lot more left in them than other things. And we're seeing that already when you have these, these kind of risk on risk off days. So mm-hmm. w- when the, when the market is, when the S and P's up like more than, you know, 1%, one and a half percent and the, and the Russell is up nicely, then what's happening is all those FANG stocks underperform pretty good. It might be up half the market. And then the airlines are up three times or four times the market. And so are the smaller stocks and the high beta stocks and the high debt stocks. So we group the airlines in with the Teva Pharmaceuticals of the world and the, the ADTs of the world. So they all, they're tending to trade together. Again, if that, if that changes and the airlines trade a lot worse, that would be a signal to us that something is, something is going awry. And you know, if we find something that we find much more compelling right. than, than the airlines, we'll do it. We did an IPO recently where we peeled back some of our, you know, some of our airlines to help fund mm-hmm. that IPO and that, you know, the IPO more than doubled. So that was a good move. So it's not yeah. like we're, we're, it's not like we're you know, dogmatically, you know, wedded to airlines. It's just that it's, it's just, it's just one uh, group among many. Let's talk about another group, which is the financials. And so you own some of the major banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citibank. Uh, and, you know, the Fed recently came out and said that they were, you know, concerned about the future of even some of the, you know, the big banks in that if, you know, things did, the economy did not improve, if a lot more loans went bad. 
so that they were concerned. And so therefore they're telling the banks, you know, look, we don't want you to raise your dividends for, I don't know, several months. And uh, we don't want you to uh, resume stock buybacks as well until for, for several months. Uh, is, is that of concern to you? No. I, I think the financials are among the most attractive areas of the market today. You mentioned earlier that the banks were the epicenter of 08 and 09, and nobody's worried about the banks going bankrupt. Their capital positions are strong. They're all very profitable. With the change in the in the way in which they uh, uh, do reserves over what it used to be, I, I'm, I was in the minority that actually liked that when they did it. But I think it's 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 turning out to be uh, a, a good way a good way to do it. And I think when the when you look at what the Fed did with the stress tests, so they'd already they already stopped buybacks. And Chairman Powell had noted at the time when he was asked about stopping dividends, he said, well, buybacks are 70 percent of the capital that banks return to their shareholders. Dividends are a relatively small part compared to that. So stopping the buybacks already gives them more capital cushion. And I think here they only said they didn't want the banks to increase the dividend for the next couple of quarters till the end of September. Right. So mm-hmm. any, 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 you, I think you correctly said that they're worried about if things get worse. Well, yeah, but if things things aren't getting worse, they're getting better. You said that the market sorted, you know, is really good at sorting most things out. What hasn't it sorted out? It takes too a dire a view of perceived risk. So there's perceived risk, and then there's real risk. And so when people are fearful, as they were after 2008 and 9, and as they certainly are now their perception of risk changes dramatically. So that just gives you a sense of how fearful they are. And therefore, the market, you know, is, is kind of the populist and meaning people, average people like retail people and then professionals like me and the people you have on your show. But we're all still people subject to the same behavioral, you know, tendencies. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's why, so in, and our observation had been in 2009 and it was only beginning to be attenuated somewhat was that if you had only do one thing in the stock market, just one thing, you would look and see where the greatest discount was between or difference was between perceived risk and real risk. And that was generally reflected in the stock's beta. So it's, it's volatility relative to the market. And if you just tilted your portfolio towards stocks with a beta greater than one, the, the market was probably over estimating risk there. And as that didn't occur, they would outperform. And that's why our fund was in the top 1% for that 10 year period after from the, you know, from the bottom of the market through end of 2019. That, uh-huh. That's, we're getting that repeated again today because of the fearfulness of, of the COVID and the fact that we had, we went from a bull market all time high to a bear market in four weeks. And now we've had a, a significant recovery, but that recovery hasn't changed the shape of that. It's all that's happened is the market has correctly said, well, now we understand that, you know, not only Amazon and, and Facebook are good, but so are ServiceNow and Shopify and all these high growth companies, the same things that have been good. But we really don't like these highly levered companies, even if they dominate their industry like Teva and ADT. Uh, and even if the bond market doesn't, isn't worried about this. So the equity market is looking at it differently. So I think that's that's a repeat, and that's the thing that we're doing with our portfolio is that is it's tilted that way. So you know, w- when the market is down, depending on what happens to those fangs, sometimes we outperform and sometimes we don't. But when it's up over one percent, then we then we outperform every day. So it's you know that's that's still playing out. In other words, okay. 
So, Bill, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, you can't go wrong if you own J.P. Morgan. It's, it's the largest and best-managed bank in the United States. It never lost money even during the financial crisis when people were thinking that the rest of the banks would have to be nationalized. It's got a fortress balance sheet, as Jamie Dimon says. Uh, they, they will raise their dividend every year, probably 10% a year. They were on track before this pandemic hit to raise the dividend this year at least 10% and to buy back 10% of their shares. So if the valuation didn't change, you'd make 20%. And I think that that's, that's probably maybe a little bit aggressive longer term. But you ought to, if the market's going to go up, as it, we think in, it will, call it 5 to 7% a year from here, uh, maybe faster in the next couple of years, then J.P. Morgan should outperform you know, 2 to 1 in that. So it should be up double that, so 10 to 14% a year. So, Bill Miller, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. It is always a pleasure. Thanks, Consuelo, and thanks for having me on. Congratulations on your 17th season on the air. You're welcome, Bill, and you have been on with us since the very beginning. <laughs> it's remarkable. <laughs> it's remarkable. Thank you. <laughs> At the close of every wealth truck, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is stay invested in stocks. As Warren Buffett reiterated to shareholders at this year's Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, equities are going to outperform the 30-year treasury bond and they're going to outperform treasury bills. They're going to outperform that money you stuck under your mattress. I will add the caveat to stay invested in stocks at your comfort level. They are called risk assets for a reason. To grow with the economy and preserve your purchasing power, there is no reliable alternative. Well, next week, global value investor Matthew McLennan discusses the financial weaknesses exposed by the pandemic and how to manage through them. To see this program again and other WealthTrack interviews, please go to our website, WealthTrack.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable and a productive one.